The people we love and those who raised us live inside us. We experience their emotional pain, we dream their memories, we know what was not explicitly conveyed to us, and these things shape our lives in ways that we don't always understand. Galit Atlas, Ph.D. Dr. Galit Atlas is a psychoanalyst and clinical supervisor in private practice in New York City. She's on the faculty of the New York University postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Dr. Atlas has published three books for clinicians and numerous articles and book chapters that focus primarily on gender and sexuality. Her New York Times publication, A Tale of Two Twins, was the winner of a 2016 Gradive Award. A leader in the field of relational psychoanalysis, Dr. Atlas is a recipient of the Andre Francois Research Award and the NADTA Research Award. She teaches and lectures throughout the United States and internationally. I first encountered her work in 2018 in her book, Dramatic Dialogue, which was co-authored with her life partner, the late Lou Aaron. I found her writing to be both accessible and honoring of the unending complexity and mystery that emerges in each therapeutic relationship. I had the good fortune of sitting down with her via Zoom to discuss her latest book, Emotional Inheritance, A Therapist, her patients, and the legacy of trauma. This is her first book written for the general public, and she has done a beautiful and heartful job of taking complex psychoanalytic ideas and making them relatable by way of the clinical and personal tales that fill the pages. I couldn't put this book down and would strongly encourage you to get a copy. She also narrated the audio book, if that's more your style. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Galit Atlas. You're listening to Why in the World, a podcast exploring the transformative power of the therapy relationship with focus on relational psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapy. I'm your host, psychotherapist Brian Nixon. Dr. Galit Alice, hello. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Hi, thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here today. Yes, I'm very excited as well. Um, I'm really excited to just kind of dive into talking about your book, The Emotional Inheritance. Um, let me get the subtitle here. A Therapist, Her Patience, and the Legacy of Trauma. Um, it was just a really striking book. Um, and so I'm excited to hear from you about the why behind the book. And so, um, you know, I'd like to kind of hear that overview a little bit, and then kind of also jump into some of the content of the book as well, and then just kind of see where the conversation goes from there. How yeah. does that sound? That sounds perfect. Awesome. Well, the first thing that kind of um, struck me was just this idea of like, how did this book come to be? You know, like, how long had it been cooking for you? And, and I, the book has a feeling of like, maybe the book birthed itself in, mm -hmm. in some way through you. And so I don't know if that's how it felt to you, but. Um, it did feel that this way, but uh, to use that metaphor, it was a painful birth. Mm. You know, births are uh, painful. So it's it, to some degree, 
uh, gave birth to itself, but with a lot of um, when I when I say pain, I don't mean that the writing was painful. I mean that the content was for me a way to process and reprocess um, not only my history, but also it was uh, right after I lost Lou, uh, Aaron, who was my life partner, who died um, three years ago from cancer. And the idea for the book was um, um, something about four or five years ago. So he was already uh, pretty sick when I started writing the proposal for this book, Mm. Uh, which in retrospect, I think really influenced a lot about this book, uh, including the emotional intensity of it. And uh, was also a therapeutic um, thing Mm. for me. But but I think I, I realized all of that only in retrospect, because while I was doing that, and I can tell you maybe a little more uh, later, there was something that I analyzed in retrospect in understanding your question, like, why, why am I doing this? Why is this the work I'm focused on? Which is to some degree what happened to me in my previous books as well, hmm. uh, especially in The Enigma of Desire. Mm-hmm. That only only after I started writing, I, I really understood what I'm writing about, which is the process of therapy, right? Mm-hmm. We do it and we analyze uh, what is happening and what are the motivation and what's the unconscious wish here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you, if you feel comfortable, I'd love to hear what you would say the unconscious wish you discovered in writing this book. Like, how would you describe that? That's a good question. You know. This book started with a short piece uh, that I used to call the Noah piece uh, mm-hmm. that was published in the New York Times. That was my first publication and the first thing I wrote mm. for this book before I knew that it's going to be a book. It was a short, a thousand words piece, and I got a lot of feedback uh, when it was published uh, in the Times. And then I was asked to write a few more short pieces and I wrote two more that were also published in the Times. And I think after I had those short pieces, the two of them I actually developed to a full chapter in the book, I looked at that and I thought, what are you writing about? And and why? Hmm. And I think that the, to some degree the motivation was uh, to understand something about my own pain and about the people around me. I mean, so a big piece of it was written during COVID, so there was a lot of a lot to process in that as well, even though I don't talk directly about COVID. Mm-hmm. And also one, I think that one theme, there are many, many sub-themes, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in the book. One of them, of course, is intergenerational transmission of trauma, mm-hmm. but not only. Right, emotional inheritance is about many, many layers of inheritance, not not only trauma. Right. And one sub theme I would say is is that tension between reparation and repetition, or mm. everything that we could uh, repair or fix versus what we cannot 
do anything about and we have to mourn. Mm -hmm. And I think that was something that was for me personally um, an emotional thing that I tried to understand, right? especially around loss and mourning. Mm -hmm. And so that, that idea of mourning is what sort of emerged to you as through the writing of the book, it sounds like. Yeah, I think mourning, and you know what I always feel, and I experienced it myself, is that when you experience loss, which is a pretty traumatic thing, always traumatic, or any other trauma, it really gets you in touch with all the previous losses and traumas that you ever had. And, and it is, and, and you reprocess those as well as all your future losses. It connects past, present, and future in a way that I don't think that I was aware of until I experienced it myself. Mm -hmm. It really puts it together and you understand the, the Freudian idea of try the afterwardness, mm -hmm. how we reprocess and reprocess our, our experiences and especially our traumatic experiences, mm -hmm. uh, including the, right, the connection to our, our future losses, everything that we know we are going to lose, including ourselves, mm -hmm. right, including our own death. And so all of that uh, was there for, for me then, uh, mostly unconsciously, but I think that as time passes and I started um, making progress in writing the book, it became more and more and more conscious. That's powerful. It's, it takes my mind to a, a quote by William Faulkner, who said that the past is never dead. It isn't even past. Yeah. Um, and it's the idea of, of rupture and repair. I mean, I think that's, that's all over the place in our field and in culture. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I hear mourning as sort of this, um, this other piece that we're not talking about quite as much. Like we live in a, a society that likes productivity and to be able to check things off and make progress and, and so we think almost as of rupture and repair as this, you know, like we, it's just stages you go through. There's a rupture and then there's a repair. But I think what you're pointing out is the gravity of, of human experience on some level that you, you can't repair every rupture. Um, and exactly. so how, exactly. do you, how do you sit with that? It's a, exactly right. It's exactly what I'm saying and, and experienced, because I think that the you know on the other side of the wish to repair is um, the wish of of being omnipotence and and fixing everything, every damage, every trauma, every mistake, every right. And I think that is always the fantasy to some degree. Again, even if it's unconscious, underneath things that went wrong or, or, or are painful or traumatic, mm -hmm. we, our, our human mind wants to fix it and do it better. And we feel guilty and we feel that if we were only strong enough or good enough in some cases, right? Or, or if, we, if we only knew the, the right thing that we always feel in retrospect that now we know, and if we only knew that we could have done that better. Mm -hmm. That is what we are against, right? Because that sometimes makes us feel stuck 
in, in endless, uh, uh, or I, I call it um, manic attempts, right, for reparations. Mm-hmm. In the book, I talk about it, especially in the first chapter. I try not to use jargon. Uh, in you did the a book. great not... job of not using jargon. I really tried. When therapists told me, "You don't, do you work in the transference?" and I feel like it's very funny to ask that because the whole book is about transference, yes. right? I just never say that it's transference, and I think in our field in psychoanalysis you need to name it sometimes and i feel like it's it's unnecessary mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, it's there the transference is there and all the jargon is there in in a, in a very 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 subtle way that that uh, lay audience does not feel like you're you're speaking to them in, in a language that is a is our secret language right, right. yes and so I, I think that that is part of what I was trying to do. And, and in the first chapter, when I talk about what I term uh, manic erotic reparation, which I talk about in other places when I write for clinicians, I don't necessarily say it that way in the book. But the idea is that we use sexuality, for example, as a way to, to try and repair and then often when we try to repair things that we can't control because we're not omnipotent and because we can't uh, fix everything we find ourselves trapped in endless repetitions mm-hmm. which eve's case eve's story the first chapter is is demonstrating we're supposed yeah. to always be empathic and all of this stuff and um but really to find a way to pay attention to like, what is my genuine affect when I'm sitting with this person? And, and what is what is that trying to tell me? Exactly, exactly right. And, and add to it, I agree with everything you're saying, add to it what happens with, when a patient experience is very similar to yours or stirred some of your own uh, early uh, object relations. Lou and I talk about that in dramatic dialogue. We t- we call it the dance party, mm. right? Of objects uh, uh, because we're there with our parents, and and I add the perspective of with our grandparents as well. And everybody's dancing there: the good object, the bad objects, the trauma. And in the book, I really describe in a few chapters how my patient's trauma tra- touches my own mm-hmm. as well as my family history, mm-hmm. and what happens then right how do we sit and this whole idea you know that we of course don't work with anymore of neutrality becomes something that we 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 smile when we even say the word neutrality right Mm -hmm. i think the smiling is is what i'm learning because i I work with a number of therapists from like various schools and Mm -hmm. within relational psychoanalysis it it seems like that's where we're able to laugh a little bit and go, it's so silly to think that I can just be objective and not bring my full being into the work with this person and that I, I'm the one with the answers and I'm helping them solve some problems. Um, but outside of relational analysis, you know, there, there may be others that feel similar, like, of course, I'm bringing my stuff in. But in, in the way it often plays out, there is sort of this expert uh, persona that is still pretty pervasive um, and so it's but it's uh, changing you know mm-hmm. I feel like you know the IPA invited me 
to the London conference to be to be part of the keynote uh, and I gave a talk there from a from a, a commentary there and from a relational perspective my feeling was that it was really well received because mm. the world have changed and with it all of us are changing Mm -hmm. and neutrality how could you talk about neutrality when a patient can google you and find everything about you including yes. how much your your apartment uh, how much you you know your apartment uh, cost or how much rent you pay or what uh, you know and what happened who died in your family and everything they can find about you so there is some some pretend mm -hmm. in that position and i think i actually think that even classical analysts already uh, shifted uh, slowly and maybe they the you know the frame is is a little different uh, and at the same time and tell me if that is uh, something that you agree with but i'm thinking like even relational psychoanalysts are not all of them uh, or all of us uh, work with what you know when we talk about uh, being not neutral of self-disclosure mm -hmm. I, I actually do not necessarily share with my patients uh, things I my frame is very clear mm -hmm. and very um to some degree sometimes even even rigid you know with time and money and all uh, those psychoanalytic classical psychoanalytic frame mm -hmm. And and I feel that this is very protective of the patients. And going back to lose distinction between the mutuality, the mutual emotion, the mutual vulnerability, mm -hmm. and yet the um, the asymmetry, mm -hmm. where we we have a different responsibility. Which I think people who are not from the relational uh, world, like us, so they they might think that we broke that as well that we broke the symmetry we broke the hierarchy as you said mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. we broke we broke the authority and the hierarchy yeah. but we kept the asymmetry because the asymmetry means that we as analysts have a different role and different responsibility mm -hmm. in that exchange yeah and that whatever it is that i'm bringing of myself into the work is in service of the patient yes but you, and at least it, that's the that's the hope right ideally yeah. right? or at yeah. least i can try to use it in the service correct the yeah yeah well that if we can rewind a little bit i'd love to hear um how do you uh, use what's getting stirred in in you if you're working with a patient and something from your own past or your own wounding gets gets poked or stirred up like how do you how do you metabolize that and then use it for the sake of the patient? That's a very good question. And the truth is that I wish I had the answer, <laughs> uh, the one answer, right? Uh, I feel like it really, really depends. And it depends on what it's, what kind of defenses it activates in me <laughs> and how, how much access I have to my own experience. <laughs> Uh, which is also something to acknowledge uh, as, as therapists that we don't always we don't always know what it touches and how, mm -hmm. and we don't always know we don't we, we don't know, we always know how to start processing that. And so, for example, in one of the chapters when I talk about Dana, uh, this is the chapter when the patient comes in and she tells me that her brother died 
and I look at her and, I, and there is a line there that I'm saying, it sounds like the most horrible thing I've ever heard in my life, the most painful thing that, and I don't know that I ever heard anything so devastating. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, right, I actually am so dissociated that I do not consciously remember that my mother had lost her brother. Mm. When she was a young girl, she was 10, he was 14 and he drowned in, in the ocean and she she was very close to him and it's one of our biggest family traumas. And so I talk mm. about how for a long time with Dana, there is something there that doesn't come to my awareness. I listen to her as if she is not my mother. Mm-hmm. Right? But actually she is. I'm treating my mother, mm-hmm. the girl who lost her brother. Mm-hmm. And that in, in the chapter, I take you with me into that process of how I slowly, that realization gets into, right? I, I start, becomes more conscious and becomes mm-hmm. more, um, less defended, maybe I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I understand it and how I think about it and what it does to that specific treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that feel that's that enigmatic feeling, that sort of uncanny. Like, how is how is this possible that it's that we we find ourselves like that? And um, for me, I, I'm curious about like, is that the way that the unconscious is? is creating these repetitions both in the therapist and in in the patient and then together in this intersubjective space between the two are the repetitions in service of helping maybe dissociated affect and emotion come to the surface so that it, it can be worked through finally is that sort of the idea I think that the, that it is a way. I think to de- the defenses are right. We, we respect defenses. We know that mm-hmm. defenses are important, and I think with a specific patient. And and if I think about this Dana case, right, I don't know that it was it was been it it was beneficial for the treatment. Ima- imagine me, right, if she when she comes in and tells me that her uh, her brother died. If I remembered in that moment that this is my mother, I think it would be a very, very different uh, treatment, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that in that moment, I'm dissociative for two reasons. One is that I am fully with the patient in that moment. And when I'm with her, there is part of me that becomes uh, peripheral. Mm-hmm. And the other reason is that in many moments in my childhood, I had to dissociate that information. And I learned how to do that. To, so I don't remember. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember my mother's wound. And, and I don't, because otherwise, I would feel her pain all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it was my way of protecting both myself and her mm-hmm. from that. And intense pain yeah that's that's profound like that the the dissociation is both personal to you and also protective of the two of you together until you both find a way to metabolize it together and in the right moment i think 
so again, uh, even I hear myself saying the right moment as if there is like the moment, right? Yeah, like and, some epiphany. There's never of like... one moment, right? There's no happy ending. There is no right? that that's a fantasy. But I think uh, in in the right moment in the therapy, I mean it in the small M moment, mm-hmm. right? Uh, not the one moment, but when we arrive into a certain place in the therapy where we're already together mm-hmm. then then new things happen mm-hmm. and then the defenses change yeah things start to to evolve and and sl- like slowly shift and yeah. her defense oh. and mine mm-hmm. it's interesting you were talking about right we're talking about co-creation we're mm-hmm. talking about relational ideas right there is a way in which in again in retrospect I don't think I could even talk to you about that while that was happening mm-hmm. in the same way. But in retrospect, when I think about this specific um, case, we we shifted our, our 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 positions, and we we be, both of us became less defenses mm-hmm. defend, defended uh, as as a reaction to each other. I think I became less defended. And she became less defended. And we had had very different defenses, by the way. We were not both using the same defenses, but something shifted for both of us thanks to our, to something that happened between us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's such an important idea that we don't always, or maybe not even often, we don't know what exactly is happening in the therapy. And so, so there's this, um, I don't know, it feels like a type of vulnerability that we have to accept um, as right. a therapist. Like we, we actually have to surrender into the process ourselves and get into the stew, if you will. Like yeah. I'm going to bring myself as an ingredient in the stew and you're going to bring yourself as an ingredient and we're going to see what we can cook together and, and what, what comes to the surface. Exactly right. You know, you're using the metaphor uh, that I use very much in the Enigma of Desire of mm, cooking. That right? Probably <laughs> probably soaked it in from that book when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you swallowed it. I did. I, and, and I hope that it sounds like you digested it as well. Uh, so it's it's yours already mm. in that way. But I, the feeling was like in the Enigma of Desire, I really talk about the, the analyst as a chef, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, and the different... Uh, schools, right? One, the more classical one, then the chef is serving a dish for uh, the patient and the patient has to uh, eat it. And, and the, I'm talking about Pharaoh's, the Italian idea of he's, he's the cook and the patient corrects the, and tells him, oh, I need, I need more salt. I need more, it needs to be more spicy, right? And he adjusts his, his dish and the relational perspective where we invite our patients into the kitchen with us and we mm-hmm. co- uh, cook together mm-hmm. and right that's a that's a that's a more collaborative work yeah it's it's such a beautiful metaphor for the work so yeah i you know the other sort of themes that come up for me in your book um you talk a lot about sort of this haunting nature of um, like you talk a lot about ghosts and, um, there's a mention of like 
when our demons can can go to rest, I think is if I'm getting that right. Um, and so I would love to to hear more of that sort of like haunting because, you know, this isn't uh, again, this is the enigmatic piece of it for me, like what's what are what's haunting us here? Like what is coming up where and the difference between I think it was Lowald who talked about making our ghosts into ancestors. Um, Exactly. And so, you know, many years ago, I was in a, a study group with Adrienne Harris, hmm. and, and and she was really, really helpful in that way and developed, I think each of us in the group went in our, went our own way with those ideas uh, about ghosts. That's what we were talking about. We talked about the ghosts of history and the ghosts of, of course, unconscious ghosts and everything that is not uh, that we don't fully know uh, it was related to loss and to trauma. I think the way I took it really is to talk about, um, especially in the second section of the book, about secrets, you know, because the book is divided to three parts. So the first part is our, it's called our grandparents, and it is mostly about intergenerational trauma and the way uh, our grandparents trauma uh, lives in us grandchildren uh, in sometimes in a very again enigmatic and uncanny way and, mm -hmm. and mysterious way you seem like oh i don't know how that happened that's mm -hmm. and sometimes it's it's things that we know about our grandparents but but sometimes it's things we actually don't know mm -hmm. and somehow communicated with us the second part is about the secrets of others and that is related to when secrets become ghosts. Mm -hmm. And I really spent a lot of time thinking about that frame of the secrets that become ghosts, the secrets that are there and we feel them and we know they're there, but we cannot identify them. And often we think that something is wrong with us because mm -hmm. we respond to something like, like people that think I see a ghost, right? Mm -hmm. And we respond to something and everybody around you said, like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. not happen or it doesn't exist and in, in those chapters you see how the secret and the ghost become visible i talk about turning the lights so the, the the demons are are there in the light and we look at them and we invite them in and we, and we actually investigate it like detectives mm -hmm. that work mm -hmm. really understanding our, our ghosts the ghost in my life and the, the third just just so i complete the three uh, mm -hmm. you know sections this the third section is is called secrets we keep from ourselves and it is really about our own work and the ways the things we transmit to the next generation mm -hmm. yeah that that idea is both like profoundly hopeful and and sort of overwhelming like yeah i'm not just dealing with my own shit here like i'm potentially carrying like my parents stuff and I'm carrying maybe my grandparents stuff and how far back could it potentially go like how how many generations upon generations of themes and secrets and you know just maybe even the uh, one way to say it might be like the energy of those secrets over time get yeah. compounded and um and so like I think it becomes overwhelming if I think that the goal is to somehow reveal the content of all of those secrets. Um, yeah. But I, I 
wonder if what you're actually saying is like, it's not as much about discovering the exact content, but working, working through the themes and the, the emotion of it. And sometimes yeah. we have to mourn and sometimes we, we make a discovery or we heal something um, and we don't even know exactly how far back the healing might go, you know, like. Exactly, exactly right. But, you know, I think it, it is, it was very surprising to me. And I think it's, it might be surprising to other people that while the, the abstract concept is very overwhelming, like, oh my God, I'm holding all of that. For most people, it is actually an aha moment. Because most people actually know their family history and they never made the connection. Mm-hmm. So for most people that, and at least that's the feedback that I get from lay audience, not, not from clinicians, but for, but actually also from clinicians uh, when I was teaching it and many clinicians said, no, I don't have hist- history of trauma. And, and as we go on and, uh, you know, in the day, everybody finds something that they knew. So, you know, it's true that it's overwhelming when we think we don't know, but I think that this framework of emotional inheritance is something that when that people just never thought about that connection, especially people who are not clinicians. And they're like, oh my God, I actually know that that what happened to my grandmother or my mother and now I understand something about myself. So mm-hmm. it is really a work of making connections, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, in that sense, I think it's it's uh, it's less overwhelming. It is actually a, a, a work of of, of a real uh, people are are relieved mm-hmm. to make that connection because because it's not so abstract. It's the opposite. It's like when the abstract becomes actually concrete. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's yeah. very overwhelming when it when it is abstract and you actually don't know anything. And you say, like, oh, my God, who knows what happened mm-hmm. in my history and how it am- impacted me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's taking my mind to. Well, I guess I feel curious to know if um, if sometimes the way that these ideas become concrete is in the emotional stew between the therapist and the patient where maybe there isn't a concrete link to a fact from the past but it's like the the emotional fact is here with us and and we have the opportunity to work this this thing out emotionally between the two of us that maybe goes back generations um where the defenses won out and um sort of that idea that you and lou talk about in um Oh gosh, why does it keep escaping me? Dramatic dialogue. Yes, dramatic dialogues. Um, dramatic. It's very, very dramatic that I keep forgetting the title. Um, <laughs> the the idea where you kind of incorporate uh, Jung's idea of this perspective function and how mm-hmm. I understood that in reading it was like there's this relentless part of of maybe our personal unconscious, but maybe also the collective unconscious that is creating these repetitions again and again and again, not because we're neurotic and we just, you know, for some reason want to repeat the past, but that something in that's trying to be discovered and healed and worked through. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
and so exactly. I guess the, the repetitions are a, an attempt. I think that's what you're saying, tell mm -hmm. me if I'm right. That the repetitions are not right. If you think about destruction, destruction versus creation, that that tension between these two opposites, right? Mm -hmm. And that we traditionally think about repetition as as something and not not constructive, right? Uh, or or even destructive at times. Um, in fact, the, the flip side of that, and we have to find the middle ground in thinking about both, but the flip side of that is that the repetitions could be creative in a sense that they are an attempt to heal. Sometimes, right, when we go back to a manic reparation, there is, there is a, a, a manic attempt to heal something we cannot fix and not, right, but there is in the in the concept of uh, the perspective function, it means that we are trying to, that it's almost like a rehearsal mm -hmm. for the future. Yeah, that I remember reading that in, in dramatic dialogues and just thinking of how beautiful that is. And, and I feel like that idea is woven through your new book as well of, you know, um, what, was, what was the line at the very beginning you said, this book will introduce ties connecting past, present, and future, and ask, how do we move forward? And, and so there is this sense of like, we're not just looking back to discover what's back there for, for that as the only sake, but like that there's something about, again, where we started today, that this dance between the past, the present, and the future is always happening. And so, um, you're yeah. really right. You know, you're really right. That um, I really, I really love that you add that future because, of course, this is a theoretical concept uh, that we developed in dramatic dialogue. How do we think about the future? And of course, it makes sense, right? Because we don't do analysis just to remember our mm -hmm. our past. We actually do it in order to have a better future to begin with, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so, even when we think about that dialectic tension between past and and future. The, the the idea that we do something just to repeat the past and of course there this is part of our our framework there is no doubt about that and we understand that whatever happened in the past is our home right and we go to the familiar but also even freud said that right we try to turn passive into active we try to turn a victim into a victor so even freud was really talking about even even if he didn't use those words about going back in order to fix something to, to turn something from from being victims to make ourselves have agency again these are not his words he didn't use the word agency but to turn ourselves from victim into victors to turn everything that happened to us was passive to something that we do which is active so all of that is really related to the future too mm -hmm. and how we right how we pave the path to a, a different future yeah yeah that's fantastic i'm thinking of like maybe one way of of thinking about it is our patients come in with their present self as they are today which gives us clues as to what their their past has been like and how they've been shaped and formed in the past so that that can be integrated for a more expansive future yeah and it's always interesting to hear uh, i sometimes ask supervisee about that how do you imagine do you have a vision of this mm -hmm. patient in the future which means a lot if you do and if you don't mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? 
And what does it mean when you cannot imagine a patient's future? Mm-hmm. Or when, when one cannot imagine their own future, like in the John uh, chapter in the book, right? Somebody who cannot imagine a future. What does mm-hmm. that really mean? Mm-hmm. And, right? and how do we work with that when the future is missing? Right. That's wonderful. Um, I, ha- I know our time is uh, coming close to an end here, but I had a, a friend and a colleague that I, I told I was going to be doing this interview and she's a huge fan of your work as well. And so she, I was like, well, do you have any, any questions you want me to ask Ali when she's, she's on the show? And she's like, yes. And so um, <laughs> is it okay if we transition to a couple of her questions? And- of course. Okay. Um, the first one, so it was what struck me about her two questions. Um, she had a couple others too, but the two that I, I, that struck me, one is more of a, a pragmatic nature and the other is more of an enigmatic nature. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was interesting to me. Let's see which one I can answer. <laughs> I find that there is no balance between them. <laughs> exactly. <For me>. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll just dance with the questions and see what happens. Um, the first one. As I read, I felt myself drawn into how relational Galit is. I could feel the story of her patients, and I could feel her own story as it wove in and out of her writing. As I read this, I found myself drawn into my own story with her stories and how it all connected. I'm wondering if that was her intent for the reader. Mm, I love that question. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's really interesting because the the real truth is that it was i didn't have an intention not a conscious one Mm -hmm. because i didn't write for the reader i i didn't i'm sorry to insult Mm -hmm. the reader but i didn't have you in mind so much when i was writing this i think that if i had you in mind i wouldn't write it the way i did yeah i needed to be alone Mm -hmm. so i wrote it alone Mm -hmm. in my room without thinking about uh, anyone reading it. I think it's a very, it's a very scary thing to write a book and especially write a book like that. And if I thought that anybody's gonna read it, I wouldn't even write it. So I needed to, speaking of dissociation, you learned something today about my defenses. I had to dissociate and say, no, I'm writing this and then we will see if I, if, if if it's good enough first of all because maybe nobody would want to even publish it mm-hmm. and i'm just going to do that and i'm going to make myself feel mm-hmm. when i myself uh, i cried i laughed i i really had an, an emotional experience writing this book mm-hmm. so i think that what is the biggest compliment for me is what your friend is saying mm-hmm. uh, is that uh, People have their own feelings and memories, and they're also alone in, you know, alone in the room mm-hmm. with the book, mm-hmm. and think about themselves and not about others, which is kind of parallel to my own experience of writing this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like your vulnerability and and freedom in the writing invites the vulnerability and freedom of the reader to reflect in a particular way. It's very well done. I'm glad you wrote it alone for as, as a reader. Let me say thank you for writing it alone. I always feel a little embarrassed to say it because it sounds like, oh, come on, you wrote a book. You didn't, you didn't think it's going to be published. 
but I really feel like it's it's so scary to think. I remember the day when my publisher was like, "Okay, we're going to publish this, and this is going to be," and I and I was very very happy. Hmm. Don't take me wrong. I was I was thrilled that uh, Little Brown loved the book mm -hmm. and and that they thought it's you know people would love it and all of that. But I remember myself reading the proofs when they sent it to me hmm. and thinking, "Oh no." You know, this is, other people are going to read it now, and I don't know that that's. Uh, I was ambivalent about it because it's so emotional and personal. Then mm -hmm. you know, even when I read the audiobook in the booth alone in dark, and I was narrating the audiobook, mm -hmm. I thought, "Wow, I don't know." It's like that was that was another another emotional experience of. of uh, you know, reprocessing all of that. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, there is something very, you have to do it alone, I guess, as you do life mm -hmm. and death. Well, it, it seems like what the way that you wrote it enabled you to at least bypass your persona and, and really show up in the writing in a way that I experience as very invitational and, um, certainly found myself in my own musings and reveries about my own life and curiosities about my own emotional inheritance. And so I, I missed my persona to tell you the truth. <laughs> I think that that <laughs> it is true. And I take it as a compliment what you're saying, but I was a little worried about, oh no, now everybody's going to know that about me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it is, uh, do I do I want that? But of course, you can analyze that too and say like, yeah, I said it only when the the, the book was already in print, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. not before. So that means something about that I wanted it to be out more than I than I didn't. But yeah. a lot of my you know fears about being seen right. came to the surface. Yes. Oh, I I did wonder about that this morning as I was getting ready for our conversation. Um, what your experience of that? was you know like your previous writings uh, are very accessible but they're still very much you know psychoanalytic there is more of the of the psychoanalytic language embedded and and all of that and so i i was like trying to be curious for myself of like i wonder what it was like for galit to to write this uh, or release it maybe from what you're saying writing it was you know that solitary experience but that point where you're like, okay, I'm going to release this to the world and my psychoanalytic peers are going to read this, like, you know. So I have to tell you, I have, I have a, it's, it's a good question because there are two, it, there are two things, right? One of them is that the writing itself was actually easier for me than writing books for clinicians because I didn't have to look for references. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's much easier for me to just go and, you know, do my own thing. But uh, the other thing is that I did have some kind of a support group around me mm -hmm. that when I finished the book uh, and sometimes like Steve Kuchak, for example, read every chapter when I finished the chapter. Mm -hmm. and there were a few other like Melanie Suchet was there reading chapters as I was going on. And then I shared with, with Beatrice Beebe and with Jessica Benjamin, and Jonathan Slavin and um, uh, Karina and Robert Grossmark. You know, I had I have a, my own mm -hmm. support group of of analysts that I really 
appreciate. Mm-hmm. And and they were my uh, testing there, you know, to the analytic world, and they gave me feedback. And, and slowly I started thinking like, you know what, they, they actually like it. So mm. maybe, maybe clinicians would like it mm-hmm. as well. Well, what a what a powerhouse of a support group you had too. (laughs) That's amazing. I I remember myself thinking if everybody, after I finished reading the, uh, writing the book, right. They, they read it and uh, most of them read it after I was done, Mm -hmm. uh, except for Steve, um, who is a close friend of mine. But I remember myself thinking if everybody else hates it, at least, at least these people (laughs) love it. (laughs) Well, I, I suspect that uh, that many more people love it. Um, I I was curious to hear from you if if you've gotten a lot of feedback yet about how the book is doing or how it's being received. I know anecdotally for for me, I'm telling all the therapists I work with like you need to get this book, um, <laughs> and you know have have recommended it even to a, a couple patients, and so. Um, yeah you yeah. know the book is is doing uh, really well and and uh, the first of all I, I don't know if you know that but amazon chose it in what is one of their best books for january mm. uh, they, they always uh, choose 10 books in every field like nonfiction or fiction uh, and so uh, in the nonfiction, uh, my book was uh, chosen as one of the best books in january which was kind of oh that's amazing, amazing. Right, uh, like oh my god, uh, they read it and they they loved it, and I think um, we had this uh, big event for clinicians that had more than seven hundred clinicians there, mm. and so I do feel like I get a lot a lot of support support from clinicians who also, uh, you know, clinicians had really hard two years. Mm-hmm during COVID and I know we, we, we don't talk about it as much, but, uh, it's not out there you know, in popular right. culture, the people talk about a, a lot of the people that had hard times, but I think like therapists really had it hard mm-hmm. and many are had really felt burned out and, and, um, and sad and, and I want to say in agoraphobic, not mm-hmm. wanting to leave the house mm-hmm. anymore. We do it everything on Zoom. And you know, there are a lot of things that we can talk about it for a whole hour. Mm-hmm. But I think that clinicians reached out to me to say uh, we needed something that is easy to read and that we could also recommend to our patients. And I do get also emails from patients, uh-huh. other people's patients, saying, My therapist recommended uh, your book. Uh, because we're working on those things, but you know, in therapy, we don't teach, you are not there to teach our patients and tell them, you know, this is what it is and this is where it came from. So I think it's an easy way for a therapist to say, just read this book and we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of patients of other people just wrote me and said, this is my therapist and she recommended this book and now we're working on it and, and thank you. So yeah. that's amazing it's, it it's really moving and and speaking of overwhelming it's also overwhelming mm-hmm. well it was a, a wonderful labor of of love and heart that you're offering the world and so i hope it spreads like wildfire thank you thank mm-hmm. you so much for your thoughtful question mm-hmm. yeah i think we skipped the second question from my my friend so we'll loop back to that real quick if you don't mind yes of course i don't want to miss the second question Uh, okay the second question um is 
what, I and mean, maybe we talked about this a little bit, but what happens when a patient has no conscious access to the past or they have a strong suspicion that the past has been rewritten? Mm, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. And I think that what happens is what usually happens in therapy, right? We sit with what we have. We imagine what we don't have. Mm-hmm. We try to understand what's missing. Uh, we don't necessarily uh, make, create a story around what's missing. We just notice that something is missing, mm-hmm. right? And I think part of what, when we talk about um, secrets and ghosts and intergenerational transmission, intergenerational transmission of emotions and trauma and everything, part of what is transmitted is the omission. Right, we as children we feel what our parents do not tell us, and in therapy we sit with that too. Mm-hmm. We sit with okay, I know that about it. I mean, the second part of the book talks about uh, you know secrets that uh, our parents kept from us, and there are many things that we don't know about our not only our history but our early childhood or how we were conceived or if we were wanted babies or unwanted babies or if mm-hmm. uh, you know what happened at the beginning of our lives really we don't know so the truth is that we sometimes make believe we know or or create narratives about knowing but we there is a lot we don't know from our, our infancy or or before we were born or you know the, his, the family history and i think it's important to include it not just to look for it for for the actual content mm-hmm. but to sit with the omission to mm-hmm. sit and say i do not know and from there you know Things are being born. Mm-hmm. We don't know, right? Yeah, like right. there will be uh, affect and emotion that gets stirred up in the not knowing or not having access as well. Yeah, and a lot, and and also new, new thoughts, new feelings, and new knowledge that mm-hmm. you know mysteriously comes to the surface suddenly when we sit with that. So we don't know. We just yeah. wait and mm-hmm. see, as as the Freudians like to see to say something will happen. Hmm. Indeed. I, th- I think I read somewhere where, you, and maybe, maybe I heard you say this, I'm not sure, but I, I'm pretty sure this was you, where you said you've, you've also learned to listen to the gaps. Yeah. So you listen to the content, but you're also listening to the gaps. Yes, exactly. Listen to the gaps. Listen to what is missing. It's like in music, right? Uh, or or in every art, uh, the, the the white canvas is part of the art, right? Or the, the, the silences are part of the music. There is no music without, right? Without the moments of sejora, right? The moments of, of pauses, and and that's what makes good art, good poetry. Uh, the things that between the lines. And that's what we listen to. We don't only listen to the words, right? Absolutely. Well, as we come close to a, a pause here, is there um, anything that we didn't talk about that you still want to mention before we end for today? There is many. There are many things we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could talk for at least a few more hours about everything. Hmm. Uh, but I really, really really appreciate your your questions and i feel like uh, 
you brought yourself into this conversation. So mm. I, it was a really good experience and I'm grateful to you. Oh, thank you. And likewise. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time and coming on the podcast. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my interview with Dr. Galit Atlas. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and also wanted to mention that if you are a therapist and these ideas are intriguing to you, the Relationally Focused Psychodynamic Therapy Program that I teach in is a postgraduate continuing ed program for therapists that specializes in taking some of these complex relational psychoanalytic and psychodynamic ideas and bringing them into clearer focus through a very experiential um, and immersive program. So if that's of interest to you, our enrollment is about to open up for this upcoming year, um, and you can find a link to the website for that in the show notes. Thanks so much.